Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Ian R. Douglas. Ian is a business executive who has spearheaded strategic development alliances and partnership opportunities for large-scale global hospitality and leisure projects for over 20 years on behalf of companies such as Kersner International. He's also founded two of his own businesses, Phoenix Global Limited and Port Hotels Limited, co-founded Kingham Lee Limited as well, and he's also a director of the Salisbury Development Group. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Ian onto the programme. Good morning, Ian, and thank you for joining us today. Hi, Scott. Really nice to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. Certainly is um, a, a nice warm day for it as well. Um, I think a good place to start, given your line of work, Ian, would be um, the sort of elephant in the room here. And that's the fact that we're recording this podcast in late July 2021. And so even though um, almost all social restrictions have now gone in England, we're still somewhat within the grip of the COVID-19 global situation, aren't we? And we have been now for the best part of the last 16 months. So um, by and large, how has all of this affected you and affected your businesses? especially in your sector? Yeah, you know, it's been an interesting time. I mean, I think it's sort of trying to make it sound polite, but my view on, you know, on the COVID situation is that um, I think we're getting there, but I think it's going to be um, a long and evolving process and uh, experience for, for all of us. So I don't think it's, you know, it's not like switching a light off. Um, I think in terms of the impact for me, um, I think like many people, when the first um, you know stages of the pandemic hit in, in March, April last year, you know I think there was a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. Personally, I kind of took a step back and tried to understand it. So you know things were you know quite sort of uh, what's the word paused, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I personally got into a lot of things like I started gardening. I was walking my dogs in to see that type of thing. And then I think after about four or so months, I think one had to realize, well, you know, we've got to move on with this and, and figure out, you know, what we do. I think, you know, like all things, there's always a benefit. Um, I think for me, the benefit was being able to sit back and really think about what I was trying to do and how I was, how I was trying to do it. And, you know, I think, in terms of um, certain of the projects that I'm working on, like, for example, um, the King and Lai project in Italy, mm. uh, we benefited enormously from the pause because it gave us a chance to just really plan the whole thing a lot better and, uh, you know, end up with a much better product. Yeah, it's I think been, on, yeah. uh, you know, the whole port hotels, mm. um, you know, that was challenging. We were building through the pandemic there was an enormous shortage of supplies and also, of course, a confused uh, workforce. We didn't really know what to expect of them, you know, how to navigate through it. So that's brought its own challenges. But, you know, on balance, it's not been a terrible time. Uh, it's been a different time. And I think that the future is looking 
you know, different, but also still positive. Yeah, I think that's very right. And one thing, of course, that the sector is having to get over at the moment, where construction is, evol- is involved, especially at the moment, is the um, shortages in the uh, the supply chain, because the supply chain being shut down earlier in the year is now sort of catching up on everybody. And that's sort of right. the next in a long line of issues to try and just sort of get over on that road to recovery, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, look, I make no apologies for the fact that I am very anti uh, I think it's a mistake, um, but you know it's over. We've got to get on with it, and I think that you know some of the challenges of figuring out how this uh, exit from a common union, you know, from a trade and supply point of view, you know, that stuff's still got to be figured out. I'm certainly finding that in my businesses in the UK, the costs are going up enormously, you know, because of new duties and things which we never had to pay. And, uh, you know, they're not a huge amount of benefits that I can see out there. But, you know, we've got to get on with it. Um, let's not try and, you know, reinvent something that's happened. Um, and as you say, in the construction sector generally, you know, there's, there's a backlog. So one is facing, you know, both logistical challenges of getting the materials and then obviously pricing challenges because of supply and demand. But I think it will sort itself out. Mm. Yeah, and business is really adapting to the challenge, isn't it? I mean, it's been a bit of a double-pronged issue for some businesses having to deal with COVID and then also the end of the transition period uh, going back to January this year. Um, And we've seen innovation, we've seen adaptation on an unprecedented scale. And as you said before as well, Ian, we've had that period of self-reflection, haven't we? That ability to step back and really think about the kind of things that we're doing. And from that sort of self-reflection period personally, would you say you've sort of come out of this pandemic experience having sort of learned something and maybe even become stronger in your position for it? Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, definitely. You know, for me personally, it's... um it was kind of quite nice in a way not to have an unplanned holiday for three, four you know, months or whatever it was. I mean, I didn't treat it like a holiday, but, you know, there were certain, mm. you know, routines that you got into, like uh, watching the um, Brothers Grimm on, you know, television at the uh, broadcast in the evening. That's a joke, by the way, but you know what I mean. And then, uh, you know, things like... Uh, getting into improving one's home. So those are sort of the tangible things. On the sort of more esoteric things, I mean, I think one really started to think quite carefully about the business that one's in and, you know, how you get people motivated and and this whole working from home idea, which is, of course, another um, aspect which is important and I think will be a... A fundamental key change, as it were, in the way that people work. Mm. Not necessarily to the extent that it's happened in the pandemic, but I think people will, people's work life balance um, and the places they work and how they work is going to change. And I think it's going to have fundamental consequences for all sorts of industries, uh, which I think is good. It is, isn't it? Our working practices certainly have changed. And I think aspects such as flexible working that have come about out of necessity during the lockdown period are going to become permanent fixtures in the way that we do business going forward. Um, And as you say, we've become far more aware of the work-life balance of mental health and well-being as well and the importance of that. Um, Exactly. 
but also as well um, when we're sort of business leaders and we're sucked into that kind of survival mode during a crisis I think it's important to remember as CEOs that you also need to step back and also look after your own mental well-being when you need to and that can sometimes be quite difficult can't it yeah it is you know look at um I mean, I can tell you, I'm a South African, as I'm sure you figured out, and I've lived here for 13 years now. I, I love the UK, with the exception of the weather occasionally. But, you know, I think that um, for me, what I really appreciate is the fact that you do have uh, a government and a support system here that really, um, you know, I think outdid themselves. Hopefully, not at the cost of future generations, we'll see. But, you know, things like the furlough program, mm. things like, for example, you know, government grants, tourism businesses and other businesses. Um, you know, that sort of stuff doesn't exist in developing countries like South Africa. And I think, you know, one's very fortunate there. So I think from a sort of mental anguish and personal point of view, you know, I think I, I, think I was a lot better off than had I been trying to run this business in South Africa, you know, we're essentially getting very little help from Mm. the Institute of State. But yeah, it is taxing, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I'll give you a little example. We had two wonderful chefs in our business in, in, um, Eastbourne in the Port Hotel. Uh, they really are fantastic in the background of our business. Because um, food is very important in the offering there, and you know, we brought them on. We actually started them on our payroll at the time when we were, you know, we had this sort of mini reopening, this sort of period coming before Christmas, and we thought, well, great, you know, we've got them, we're going to carry on. And of course, then lockdown came, lockdown two or three, I'll leave mm. um, And you know, these two guys had not been employed early enough to furlough and they'd been employed as it were late enough that we could have just said to them, look, guys, we're going to, sorry, game's over, we're going to retrench you. Not even retrench you, they were still under really probation. But I said to my partner, Peter, I said, no, we're not going to do that. I said, we're going to keep these guys working, we're going to keep paying them and we're going to basically use them to help on all sorts of other aspects of this business while they, while they can't cook. And, you know, the kind of loyalty that you develop in people by taking those sort of actions, I think is, is you know, very, very good. And, and that's the lesson mm. you know, from the pandemic. You know, trust your people, be loyal to them, and be loyal to you. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the story. I think that's incredibly True, because I think what's happened is even though in many, many circumstances we found ourselves working away from each other and leading teams from afar during this pandemic, I think Mm -hmm. how we've all sort of come together to keep business running during this time and keep the country running, it's so, so admirable. And I think even though we've been apart, our human connections have actually grown even more powerful, haven't they, in a way? They have, yeah. I mean, the one thing that always amuses me, though, and I think they're reflected by it, and it's, it's quite a nice, nice little anecdote, I think, for your listeners, is somebody once said to me on in the middle of the pandemic, they said, no, no, you know, people are going to go back to the office. I said, are you sure? He said, yeah. They're going to go back to the office. No one's ever been promoted on a Zoom call. 
and that's I think true. So I think you know you we've we've worked around it. We've we've worked incredibly well. I mean, really, you know, I wasn't a great video conferencer before. I've become a huge video conferencer now. Mm. But I think at the same time, you know, human contact is important, and that's something that you know I really love and is very important to our business. Our businesses are really all about you know people interacting and and the personal touch. And I think that's you know that's going to be something that you know will be part of uh, our lives for forever. Yeah. Mm. Experiences, personal interaction, and you know the opportunity to to create great memories and experiences with your loved ones. Yeah. That's what it's about. Those precious moments, and and what we try to do is create the environment in which those things can happen. Mm. I think that's very right, and I can certainly see where you're coming from, because as humans, we are social creatures, aren't we, fundamentally? And even though, of course, there are benefits to sort of doing some things remotely, maybe sometimes you don't have to do the sort of three or four hour journey for a one hour meeting, for instance, and you can do that remotely. Um, We can blend the two together because there is always going to be a place for teams coming together, especially in those more creative industries. And in hospitality as absolutely. well, it's it's absolutely necessary. It's a customer-facing experience. It has to be. Yeah, that's the core. I'm working on a huge project in Spain at the moment, and we literally you know, had not met as a group for 14 months. Personally, we had a meeting this past week in Barcelona, and, I mean, it was just fantastic because you just do get so much more out of that sort of, Session. It was a design and planning session, you know, and you had 10 people around the table, uh, shirt sleeves rolled up, uh, pens on plans, and, and that sort of thing, I think, is, you know, there's no substitute for that. Mm. You can't do that sort of thing on a video call. But I do think you're right. A lot of time in life, I think, is wasted you know, by people going from A to B simply to because, you know, that's the way we've done it for the last 300 years. Um, And I think that will change. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be a time of change, isn't it? But it's so good to hear as well that you've got that big project in Spain that you're working on, which I'm sure is one of many. The ambition and the hunger Mm. of business hasn't been dampened by the pandemic for sure. And just before we do wrap up, Ian, um, I would like to talk a bit more about the future. Um, what is sure. sort of next for you over the next sort of 12 months, do you think, as hopefully we embrace the challenges of the sort of post-COVID world in the UK? And what are you hoping to yeah, achieve? I mean, yeah, I think, look, firstly, I mean, you know, for me, it's, um, I wouldn't say it's business as usual, but it's, not, you know, things carry on. And things are, you know, at a very exciting point for me in, in, on various of my businesses, which is great. I mean, for Port... We're going to develop further properties. We've got one small property, which is getting a lot of traction, getting a lot of media attention, and and that in 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 Eastbourne. Eastbourne's a kind of strange place because people always thought of it as a sort of coach tour destination, you know, with um, grey rinse old mm. ladies in buses. And we're trying to change that, and we we I think we are changing that. You know, it's an hour and a half. Aren't twenty minutes from London, uh, and it's a great weekend destination, and it's got a massive convention centre, which you know I think will 
conventions will come back because of the reasons that we've been talking on this call. Mm. So Port's going to expand. We're going to do another building, uh, another another hotel probably this this year. We'll start on that and probably another one starting next year. Um, then my second business, uh, King & Lai, has got a massive project in Italy, luxury hotel project there, which we're busy financing, 90-bedroom 90, um, 90 super luxury hotel in the Veneto. Uh, my consulting business continues, which is where I'm working on the Barcelona project, uh, which is going great. Um, and then lastly, I've got Salisbury Development, which is um, doing you know some residential development in London. And I think you know the London market is always going to be strong. Mm. You know, there's no there's no other place like London. You know, everyone in the world wants to live in London or have a place here. And I think the government have been clever in sort of enabling that and not making it uh, too onerous in terms of rates and taxes and other things. So mm. I think, you know, I'm very excited about, about those four things. Uh, I also have other investments in some quite exciting technologies and developments in, in um, Denmark. And um, one of the more interesting ones I'm working on is a thing called Pathogen Reduction Systems. Mm. which is essentially a, 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 a means of cleansing buildings of uh, the COVID uh, pathogens, COVID, COVID germs, essentially, and other germs like measles, flu, etc. And the system works by really conditioning the air that's going into the building and making them safe. And I think that's going to be crucial for getting people back into those buildings mm in the future. So that's at an early stage. The process is being trialed at the moment, but I play a small role in trying to help them as a shareholder. And I think that's exciting as well. Yeah. Very exciting times. It seems Ian, and it's a real shame actually that we're just about out of time on the podcast today, because I could certainly talk about these exciting projects all day with you, I'm sure. And actually as we, as we also get an idea of how well they're starting to come along over the next few months, I I really would relish the opportunity to welcome you back onto the show with us because I've thoroughly enjoyed having you. No, it's a great pleasure. I love talking um, to people. Sometimes I talk too much, but no, I'm excited about what I do. I love what I do. I have a lot of passion for what I do. And I think, um, you know, for me, the future is very bright. So thank you for having me. It's been great. It's been a pleasure, Ian. And that passion and that positivity is so infectious. And lastly, just before we depart, uh, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on as well. And I'm sure better days are ahead yes. of us. Yeah, absolutely right. That's true. It was a pleasure welcoming Ian R. Douglas onto today's programme and I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed a quite exciting interview and an insight as to what's been going on within the hospitality sector. Of course, here on the Leaders' Council podcast, we bring forward a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership and therefore our Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord Blunkett, will be joining us next on today's show. He'll be discussing his take on the COVID-19 pandemic that has affected us all so much over the last 16 or so months, as well as his hopes for this period of economic recovery that we're hopefully entering with the lifting of restrictions. That will be coming up on the show next, of course. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? 
Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. Have uh, not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff, and of course whether they can receive the the grant, ten thousand or twenty-five thousand. All, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being. And look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side 
effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the 
crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. 
Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so 
on different levels. I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. 
Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. 
Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government, but we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. 
Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.